Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and we are here competing for the Olympic gold medal in political analysis and commentary. And it's quite clear that a race-conscious lens is necessary to understand pretty much everything happening in the world, including in the Olympics, where you have a lot of the coverage of the decision by Simone Biles, the black woman who's the best gymnast ever to withdraw from competition to protect her mental health, and a lot of controversy and discussion about that, which then required and sparked Simone Manuel, a black woman swimmer, to have to tweet out on Saturday, I don't do gymnastics in response to all of the people confusing the two of them. So we've got that happening. And in, in today's podcast, we are going to be having a Black man join us. And I'm hoping that my co-host, Charlene Chang, will be able to distinguish between the two of us. And so, Charlene, this is Steve. And do you want to introduce our co-host? Hey, Steve. Our- Thank- thanks for making that clear. I think I'll be fine. Yeah, I, I'm doing overall great and was just thinking about how I'm also looking forward to getting back to the Bay because I've been in here, rural Canada, for a couple of weeks visiting my in-law side of the family. Dodging bears, yes. Dodging bears, as I've been sharing photos with, you know, our team every now and then coming across bears. They're they're not as, they're not that the aggressive type here. So nothing to be that worried about. Although I definitely, when I spot them far away, I run very quickly the other way. And we're also dodging a lot of smoke here. So um, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's become the new norms, but um, we're keeping ourselves busy. Thanks for asking. I'm definitely looking forward to talking to today's guest because I've been wanting to talk to him for a while and I know you have been too, Steve. So I'm going to let our audience know a little bit more about him. Perry Bacon Jr. is a columnist for the Washington Post where he writes about politics, race, and identity and how our nation's two major political parties are changing. Before joining the Post earlier this year, Perry was a senior writer for the data journalism publication 538. Before that, he was a government and elections writer for Time Magazine, a senior political reporter for NBC News, where he covered the Obama administration, as well as the 2012 and 2016 elections. And he was the political editor for The Grio. He's also been an on-air analyst at MSNBC and a fellow at New America. Perry graduated from Yale with a degree in political science, and he lives in Louisville, Kentucky, which is his hometown. So welcome, Perry. So great to have you on. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, great to hear. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And uh, it's so funny, you prepare for a podcast, you start to learn things about people you didn't know before, you've interacted with in different ways. And um, I don't think I've told anybody (laughs) this story. So my senior year in high school, the same weekend, I lived in Cleveland, and the same weekend I went to visit Yale and then Stanford. And I stopped back actually in Cleveland on the, on, in between the two. And I chose Stanford because Yale and New Haven team were too old, and all they really had was like pizza places, whereas Stanford and Palo Alto were new. And they had Arby's and Kentucky Fried Chicken in Palo Alto. So. Oh, man. And that was a draw. <laughs> <laughs> that was a draw. <laughs> I didn't know um, that you that you lived in Kentucky, and so I've only we've only ever acted interacted in D.C. Right, my my main connection with Kentucky, being from Ohio, was that the one time I went to to Cincinnati, you fly into Kentucky, 
Correct. And that actually gave me some insight into Southern Ohio's politics actually being, in, you know, much more, you know, akin to a lot of the Southern dynamics. And so just kind of curious to how you got back to Kentucky and kind of what's the, is that where you've been during the pandemic? So I grew up here, went to college, and I was in D.C. for 16 years. So most mm. of my, you, you know, she, Charlene read off all those D.C.-ish jobs. So I was in D.C. a long time. And at some point, my wife and I were sort of like, oh, we'd like to live somewhere else. Don't want to live our whole lives in D.C. Um, she, her family's in Rapid City, South Dakota. So I was able to luckily win uh, the, hopefully my in-laws will not hear this podcast. So I was able to um, win, win, and we decided to move here. Um, and uh, that was in August 2018. And, you know, the pitch I made to my boss as I was at 538 then was like, you know, this is the place where Mitch McConnell is, so I'll be able to, you know, and I do see him occasionally. He lives in my neighborhood, actually. Oh, but really? also, oh my yeah, gosh. <laughs> he, you know, yes, yeah, so he, he's in Washington most of the time, but he's, yeah, he lives about a mile from here. And um, also that at that point we had, we had a, you know, our governor was named Matt Bevan, and he was probably the most, a lot of the DeSantis's and people like that are very Trumpy now, but he was, Matt Bevin at that point was probably the most Trump-style governor in America. And so right. I had written a piece about him, and I thought being here in Louisville was a good place to, you know, Louisville's about 60, 40. It's a, you know, Democratic-leaning city, but in a very red state. So I thought there'd actually be good stories to say, you know, for coming from a, Louisville perspective, which is blue, but not DC blue. And then Kentucky, a red state with a governor who was sort of Trump-like. So I think there's been some good stories. I thought it'd be a good journalism move as well as honestly, we can, we can afford a larger house in a backyard here compared to DC. Yes. Well, cost of living in that part of the country is very different than yes, like where DC, you guys are. So. Yeah, you're making yeah. me want to think about moving from the Bay Area to Kentucky. <laughs> That's, um, but speaking of Kentucky, during your time at 538 Perry and now at the Washington Post, you've been, you know, all these past few years analyzing the way the two parties, namely the Democratic Party and Republican Party in this country have been changing. And you did 16 years in Washington, D.C. Now you're in the South, adjacent to the Midwest. I want to talk to you a little bit specifically also about the, a piece you recently wrote for The Washington Post about living in a Democratic bubble in Louisville, which was kind of illuminating for me. Again, I live in a bubble inside a bubble in California. And to think about a Democratic bubble in Louisville was really interesting and illuminating. You had noted that only 18 percent of your neighbors are Republican and that while there's a town four miles away that is more balanced between the parties demographically, population wise, you wrote, and I'm not moving there <laughs> because you don't want to, you quote, spend a ton of time with people trapped in Trumpian thinking, which right now is a lot of Republicans. You also talked about what folks are getting wrong in the conversation right now around political polarization in the U.S. And you made the point that most of the discourse assumes both sides want a free and prosperous democracy. This sort of like that it's pretty much the same. It's just different sides or politics or party. You noted that that's not the case. And we here at Democracy in Color, we know that's not the case. And certainly Republican officials continue to make that clear that that's not the case that what they want is not, in fact, free and prosperous democracy. Now that you're back in your hometown, again, in the South, Midwest adjacent, what is your perception of that partisan divide? And what does it look like from where you are now? And how significant do you think that is to national politics today? So the piece came from, you know, like, 
until I became a columnist, I spent, you know, almost 20 years in sort of more, you know, traditional, nonpartisan, sometimes, you know, don't say which, don't say what your opinions are, uh, try to be balanced or quote unquote objective, whatever that means. And so, you know, when I started off covering politics, it was like George Bush and John Kerry, and we can debate, you know, how conservative or, you know, George Bush was, or, or John Kerry, how liberal John Kerry was, but you know, I came up in journalism in a time where the the editor of the Washington Post, when I got there, Lynn Downey was famous for not voting. You know, he because mm-hmm. he didn't want to seem object, he wanted to seem as objective as possible. And so, yeah. and so that's kind of where I started from. And this idea that we were all getting more polarized was a lot of my career was we're all getting more polarized, and that's bad. You know, polarization is bad. The Democrats mm-hmm. are intolerant of the other Republicans. The Republicans are intolerant of Democrats, and this is all polarization, and we all need to come together. And in reality, I think it maybe was always the case, and Steve might say this, that we had sort of a pro-black party and anti-black party. Mm -hmm. But I think by 2014, or maybe 2010, that was becoming more clear to me that now we're sort of, I'm being asked a lot to be sort of objective about like my identity and my humanity, which one party respects and one doesn't. Mm. And so I've become more flustered with this frame of like polarization. It's a fancy word that basically means both sides are becoming more extreme. When I see the Democratic Party is becoming, I guess, more extreme in terms of it wants to focus more on equality. It wants to make LGBT people and black people and Hispanic people and Muslims and transgender people. It wants to make them more a part of America than they are now. And the Republicans want to stop those people from voting. I guess those are both polarizing in different ways. But that seems like a sort of a dumb thing to say that the parties are getting extreme when one party is getting more pro-equality and one's getting more racist and anti-democratic right in front of you. So... So that's so that's the point where I was like, I want to write a piece because I still think you read a lot of, I think there's been pieces recently saying the parties are being more polarized, and in some and some liberals even are, some Democrats, let's call them Democrats, will say, well, the Democrats are getting more extreme too. Well, mm-hmm. if you, you know, I just think that the, if you're polarized or if you're getting more extreme in terms of equality, that's good. I mean, right. in terms of pro equality, that's good. So the piece kind of came from that discourse. And what I have found is like in Louisville, it's the same, you know, there's a lot of the same dynamics of the case in D.C. So I live, so D.C. is 94% Democratic, Louisville is only 60% Democratic. But, um, but, the, the, but the sort of divides are on the the same lines in a lot of ways. Like there are, there are, the differences are about race. They're about mass wearing. They're about do you believe in science? And so the and so I don't think those are that. A lot of those divides of these have a national scale. You see in a place like Louisville. I live, you know, closer to neighborhoods with lots of Republicans than I did in D.C. But I think the divides are the same. And and I sort and I ended up being in an area that is pretty democratic, mainly because I wanted to be in an area with um, lots of things you could walk to. And then once you're in the Midwest, there aren't a ton of areas where, at least, at least in Louisville, I should say the whole Midwest, at least in Louisville, there aren't a ton of neighborhoods where you can walk to stuff, and those neighborhoods tend to be heavily democratic, and we can think about why that might be the case. But, you know, when I moved here initially, I was like, oh, I wish I was in a more politically balanced area. Is it, am I contributing to polarization? But 
the last year things got really even more real than they always were. I want to be in a neighborhood where people are vaccinating, where people are wearing their masks, where people believe that Joe Biden won the election because he did, where people can put up Black Lives Matter signs. I think those are all good things, and I don't want to apologize for that. Yeah. You were so I, I, one of my diversions is I, I watched the uh, Home and Garden Channel and the House Hunters, and they they frequently be like, the couple be like, I want a place where I can walk the things, and I was all like, oh, it's like coming to life talking to Perry here. <laughs> um, but I am curious in terms of the dynamics, you know, of your neighbors or the people in the area, right? So I feel like in a lot of ways that Kentucky reminds me of, uh, you know, Lucy and Charlie Brown in terms of the, you know, kicking the football. Like, oh, this year, this time we're gonna win right. in Kentucky. <laughs> Allison London Grimes is going to yes. beat uh, McConnell and this Amy McGrath. And so I, I'm, and then one of the things that like uh, Ron Brownstein, you know, the writer for the Atlantic and CNN talks about is this growing divide between metropolitan areas and then the non-metropolitan areas and how like the Trump support uh, and that worldview is really growing in the non-metropolitan areas and they're conceding the metropolitan. But I'm wondering about how progressive like what is the analysis of actually within the metropolitan areas and how much potential is there what do you really see about the politics there in general and also in terms of the whites there in particular right? i mean still 48 percent of college educated whites voted for trump so there's masking there's vaccinating there's politics so what are you seeing uh, in your metropolitan area in terms of the openness of the whites there regarding racial justice racial, racial equity so, you know, we had Brianna Taylor was killed by the police here. So we had a yeah. we've had a gr- big, massive discussion within Louisville, which, is, like I said, is like leans left mm-hmm. about sort of racial justice in which you and it's opened up a lot of like really interesting conversations. So the F so like Louisville's mayor is a Democrat who endorsed Bloomberg for president. So this is like mm-hmm. give you a context for that. So mm-hmm. he's so he's like. He would probably call himself a Biden Democrat, but he might even be a couple degrees to the right of that. So he's mm-hmm. not. And we have a mayor's election right now and a, or a mayor's campaign. Happening. It looks like they're going to have another sort of he's a another sort of like moderate white male businessman. So that's kind of like you're not not only is defund the police not going to happen here or decreasing police funding, but you've had real tensions about like exactly really any kind of change in policing is like resisted pretty strongly here and not just by the Republicans. Because you have a pretty big group of Republicans, but then the median sort of voter is a person who is a Democrat, but very much not a liberal. So that's kind of where I'm in a more sort of liberal area, but even I am in the most sort of liberal area of the city, but there's a, you know, there's a debate about like one of the, there's a private swimming club here and you have in this liberal area where you, and you have to be, you have to live in this neighborhood and you, or you'd be sponsored by someone in the neighborhood to join the swimming club. And so even that, and if you walk in the club, it's unsurprisingly like 98% white. And so even those kind of issues where, you know, like it's not a, it's not an intentionally segregated swimming pool, but it's certainly an overwhelmingly white one in a, in a very liberal area. So even those were sort of like moving from DC to here is just a different kind of conversation about racial issues where the Democrats are probably more to the left in DC and then this and there's more of a constituency around really it's not just like having the Black Lives Matter sign but really kind of embodying that ethos. We're not, you know, that, that's still the debate here about what is that we have very segregated neighborhoods, we have fairly segregated schools, and so what does that look like to change that is a real discussion that's happening here, and 
segregation, segregated schools and neighborhoods is not just the Louisville problem, but it's obviously something we're talking about here. And then the politics is like, you know, Amy McGrath won this area by a lot, Louisville by a lot. So it's more just that what's happening in Kentucky is Mitch McConnell actually was initially is from Louisville and, and was won the was the county executive in Louisville for some period of time. So he actually has grown to be. He'll tell you this. He's actually changed his political style to become less popular in Louisville and more popular in the rural areas. And he's kind of proud of how much like he wins elections about the, the same amount now, but his the way he wins is much mm -hmm. different. He loses Louisville by a ton, wins the rural areas by a ton, and so mm -hmm. it's really hard to change the politics here because Louisville and Lexington are the two biggest cities they're nowhere near Atlanta like about a, about a, about a half of the people who live in Georgia live in the greater Atlanta area I think about one-fourth of the people in Kentucky live in the Louisville or Lexington area so that's the end of the debate right there as we it's a I think it's a 90% white state that's not very urban yeah. so we always be very hard for Democrat to win here yeah yeah right yeah. I think that that's one of the threshold people uh, issues people don't really grasp in terms of the a political analysis around where yeah. is it possible to win right so we were out early and Roxanne Cutler sent out a fundraising email in March of 2020 for Raphael Warnock and we and we raised three hundred dollars for him and then I put together a fundraiser in June of 2020 helped him raise thirty thousand of the four million he scraped together by June Amy McGrath had raised $50 million at that point. And so there's not an appreciation nationally about the importance of the fundamental ratios of progressive whites and people of color within the different states. And so it leads to, the, I think, distortion of analysis. Um, I wanted to turn a little bit to something you mentioned in your, it really struck me in your, in your bio on the on Washington Post that you talk about your beat. The first thing that you list is the future of America in the midst of a partisan uncivil war and democratic backslide. And so that really caught my attention. So I'm trying to finish this book. It's going to be called How We Win the Civil War. And right. And so in, in, in preparing, in researching the book, I came across this quote from the historian Lerone Bennett Jr. And he talks about the post-Civil War period, right? And he says, most Confederate leaders expected imprisonment, confiscation, perhaps even banishment. Expecting the worst, they're willing to give up many things in order to keep some. If ever there was a moment for imposing a lasting solution for the American racial problem, this was it. But the North dawdled and the moment passed. This was one of the greatest political blunders in American history. So I'm curious, how do you look at this moment, right, post-insurrection, a year after the racial reckoning, in terms of where you think we are? in terms of you know advancing racial justice in the context of whatever opportunities may have arisen in, in those in those moments i worry we're in a really bad place and we're where the um the republican when i what i see is a really we're in a really bad place and i would say you know i read i read a lot of what steve writes and listen to this podcast ron brownstein i think is covering this story better than anybody in journalism and is probably the best person covering politics day to day in america and so what i see is that to the, that the Republican coalition is knows they're in the midst of a civil war and is trying to win it by any means necessary. Yeah. And that means from January 6th to following January 6th by trying to make it harder for anybody from Raphael Warnock, make it harder for Democratic leaning people, black, Latino, young, particularly to vote, like Texas, Georgia. The Republicans know they're in a existential fight and they are trying to win by any means necessary. 
On the other hand, you have a lot of Democrats like me, and I would say Steve, who are in the group that this is like, or a lot of people, I don't, I'm not registered by party, but a lot of people who sort of see this fight is, is, a, is a, a real civil war and the dimmer, and you have to have an opposition coalition fighting the Republicans and seeing it honestly. But I think there are two problems there in that coalition. While the Republicans are pretty much unified around a civil war mentality, except for sort of the Bill Crystal Republicans, I think that you have pro you have a problem where I would say Joe Manchin, Cinema. I'd expand it to Mark Warner, Dianne Feinstein, a lot of people on President Biden's staff, in my view, who just don't see it that way. Who either either don't see how aggressive the Republicans are fighting this, or just or are seeing it but can't adjust to it. Like in some ways, in the Democratic Party, I see sort of almost like bipartisanship is a virtue and getting along and finding common ground. You can't find common ground with people who don't want to find common ground with you. But if you listen to the Chris Coonses or the Mark Warners or sometimes Biden sounds like this himself, you can't, if one side's in a civil war, you can't, you can't have a compromise with them. And I think that's one problem. And then honestly, and I worried about this after the uprisings and the protests in 2020, 2020, you have a block of Democratic-leaning people, many of whom are, I'll say, white and male, who honestly don't really, are kind of uncomfortable with a sort of a more, quote-unquote, woke, more racially progressive party, and who constantly are writing things like, Democrats can't talk about race or they'll lose this swing district, which yeah. that might be true, but Democrats don't can't talk about race because I don't want them to because that makes me uncomfortable is actually what's going on here. And so you have one party that's really unified, and you have the other party in this that's not really together in fighting this civil war. Yeah, well, actually, so I want to pick up on that and tie that kind of back to your neighbors to a certain extent, right? So what's fascinating to me, and particularly the advantage of like really trying to immerse myself in the history and look at what actually happened and then, and then analogize it to what's happening currently, right? So first of all, the Civil War itself was the result of the pro-slavery party not accepting the 1860 election results. And so just as Trump did all this different crazy stuff after this election, they were like, we're not going to accept him. In fact, we're going to succeed. And so that that thread, that that through line. And then we to your point about where the, some of the different, you know, the, the Democrats are at, they could not pass the 13th Amendment ending slavery, just saying we should not have slavery could not get out of the House of Representatives. And I thought that was bad enough. Let me get think about it. It's like they had already succeeded. There were no Southerners in the Congress and they still couldn't pass the 13th Amendment on the first try. So this whole notion about timidity around taking a stand around racial justice, um, I've come across, I've seen this phrase from that time period. They were using the phrase, you know, Republicans at that point have Negro on the brain and they were worried about the electoral consequences. So I'm curious, to me, the question is not like Biden or any of these people are going to be all like, we don't support these things. What holds them back is, well, if we get behind them, we're going to lose all this support. And that's what I think is one of the fundamental questions of politics at this moment. So in terms of your neighbors, the white folks in place like Louisville, A, will they be turned off in terms of your experience? Oh, it's a stronger stand on racial justice. And then B, is there a way to really force the issue even more? Right. And sort of just saying, oh, we have Confederate, you know, monuments, et cetera. It's like, no, that was a 
treasonous mass murderer in terms of who Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee were. And so how would they respond in that regard? So what's your sense of the potential to win over some more of those folks on those lines? So I, so I tend to think that like, you know, like most of my neighbors are Democrats. So I tend to think they would follow what the party leadership says. And that's what I, and they, you know, and I, and I, they take a lot of, most, most of the evidence is most people who are in a party take cues from the leaders of the party. So if Joe Biden started speaking in more direct terms about where we are, if, if Joe Biden started sounding like Steve Phillips, I think the overall majority of Democrats are <laughs> Wouldn't that be? I think that, that would be and I think that the the one speech Biden gave on voting rights, except for not calling for the filibuster, he did sound like Steve Phillips. So I mean, the, you know, this is the biggest threat since the Civil War. So he actually, so I think that language, like we saw last year, like most Democratic leaning, not, most people didn't go to the protest, but most people certainly supported the ethos of the protest. And so, would would my would every white person who's a Democrat support reparations themselves? I, I'm skeptical about that. But I think if we can get, but I think the sort of raising general pushing on race a lot more for school integration. And so I think that I think those things can happen if the party leadership really tries to drive that through. And so I so I tend to think it's the leaders need to move the followers, not the leaders need to wait for the followers to move there. Now, in terms of the sort of swing voter in Kentucky, I'm not I'm not an expert on that. We don't really have that's not really don't really, we don't have a swing voters in Kentucky. It's not or it's not a state where that matters a ton. Um, I know that I actually am not sure that Joe Manchin or let's say cinema. I'm not sure cinema is afraid to embrace these racial or sort of HR1, HR4, more progressivism on racial. I don't think actually the barrier is electoralism. I think the barrier is actually that seems divisive to them. I actually think if they like sat down with like Stacey Abrams has, has you know has been in, involved in more really competitive elections than most of, than Mark Warner has, and so I guess if she if she if, you know I think she can make a pretty compelling case that speaking about racial issues in honest ways the way they did the way Ossoff and Warnock did does not kill a candidate. I just don't think Mark Warner and the Repub the Democrats in the Senate want to do that because. I hate to say this, they want to be friends with Rob Portman. This is what we're really talking about here. Is like, I yeah. think a lot of this is they want to be in the Senate of 1993. That Senate is over, but but I don't, but I can't convince them of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But even in <laughs> 1870, I mean, I'm looking at actual congressional testimony from the post Civil War period, and you see that exact kind of language. Well, if we push for these, you know, uh, equality measures, we're going to harm our friends in the South, right? So that whole notion has been with us for a long time. Perry, I want to, I was really, you really piqued my interest when you said you had heard Biden speak like Steve Phillips. And, uh, <laughs> I may have missed that. Speech. I think I, I may have missed that. There were a few lines in this speech that really <laughs> elevated the problem at the level it should be. There were a few lines in this speech that reflected my alarm with where we are. I thought that I, but then the solutions were nothingness. Yeah, but, so let me, yeah. I wanted to follow up on that and just get your thoughts on what do you think Biden is doing? How do you think he's doing in terms of issues uh, around racial equity? And let me just uh, give you one example and uh, ask you to respond to this specifically. Like, why do you think, for example, he hasn't moved forward on the commission to study the effects of slavery in the U.S.? Uh, is he just hoping H.R. 40, which again is the bill to commission this study of the effects of slavery which many see as the first step to reparations in this country. 
Do you think he's just hoping it'll go away? What do you think specifically he's thinking on that? And also overall, what about in terms of issues of racial equity? How do you think Biden's doing? I mean, this is a very polling. They don't say this. This is a very polling focused administration. And the polling on the idea Mm. of reparations is not very popular. Again, the polling on a commission I haven't seen, I guess it's it's probably not. The polling reparations is just like something like 30% of Americans support it, which means 70% don't. So um, there's no way it'll pass in the Senate because I don't know, because you'd have to change the filibuster and so on. We wouldn't, I don't think there's the there's probably not 200 votes in the House for reparations itself. Maybe the commission will be closer to probably 200 for the commission itself right now. So I think the commission or a study for reparations couldn't pass the House, doesn't have, couldn't pass without a, um, can't get the 60 votes in the Senate and the filibuster can't change and doesn't poll well. So that's kind of why Biden won't do it. And I don't think that's going to change. And I'm guessing they're trying to run out the clock on that. This is kind of where they are. That is not surprising to me. I would say that on, if you look at their sort of policy record from the stimulus to the infrastructure bill they're doing now, I think their policy record on racial issues is probably better than what we saw from 2009, 2016 in general. So I actually think they've actually done pretty well. And if you look at some of the things he's done sort of symbolically, going to Tulsa the way he did and the high profile way he did and giving the speech he did was actually a pretty profound moment. I don't think I expected a American president to talk about those race, what's to happen in Tulsa the way he did and how he did and focus on it. That was a big thing. Um, making Juneteenth a holiday again symbolic but good like i mean i again the other thing i would come back to is their view is that critical race theory that's like a side issue i would argue that half the states trying to ban discussing talking about racism honestly is a huge problem and a problem that the president should speak to not necessarily to have a bill but i think this sort of avoiding critical race theory because it's a cult they do a little too much in my view of the this is a cultural issue and joe biden won because he was a moderate on cultural issues I don't think that's exactly how Joe Biden won. I think Joe Biden won because there was a massive turnout because people were trying to stop the racism and anti-democratic behavior of Trump. And so I think they, my worry is the Biden people have a coalition in their head that is made up of white truck drivers and that's not who their coalition actually is. They know, like if I, if I got one of them in a corner, they would say, we know our coalition is very diverse. But if you look at them, like the the amount of glee he had when he got a bipartisan infrastructure deal done with a with a group that was entirely white senators yeah. is worrisome to me. I just think they the, he, his norms are still I think the core staff around Joe Biden is still older white people. There are some women there, but older white people. And I still think they at times have a sort of 1996 version of the electorate. And that's my, and that affects how they deal with race. Like I said, they're, they're like, I would say they're doing better in terms of race and overall economic populism, racial justice compared to the Obama administration. So that's good. I still think they're behind where they should be and where we can be because of these outdated views about electorate. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's funny as you were talking about, you know, Biden sounding like me and it brought me back. I was all like, oh, maybe I had forgotten that he had appointed Susan Rice to kind of head up the racial initiatives, right? So I, I went to college with Susan. I remember, you know, we knew each other. Susan was a great person, yeah. Yeah, I did a, I was president of Black Student Union when she got the Rhodes Scholarship. I gave, you know, we did a reception for her. I still remember joking with her about why she taken that racist Cecil Rhodes' money and without missing a beat. She's all like... <laughs> It's about time to start giving some money to black people, right? So it's good. Yeah. There is there is that, but it, but it's interesting because I was like, 
I, I had forgotten that Susan was supposed to be put in charge of all the racial stuff. When's the last time you heard from Susan Rice, right? In terms of that whole piece, in terms of bringing her out. And then even the commission piece, that my worry is that HR 40 is a convenient excuse. Oh, I support HR 40, knowing it'll never pass. Correct. There is nothing stopping Biden from creating a presidential commission to study races and to study the, the, the effects of slavery, whether or not we should have racism. And so then it would have the profile, it could have the different people, it would have the seal of the president without needing a vote for Congress. If it were a priority, that was something that they would actually do. If it were a priority, I think is the, or if, or, or if they did not have this view that we need to poll it first and yeah. it might not poll the way we wanted to in Wisconsin. That's what we're really talking about here. Oh yeah. No, I talked to one of Obama's pollsters in 09 or 20, 2010. And he said, all we poll are white people. Oh man. And so he was working for the White House. <laughs> or, or they're focused on like, you know, like Steve and I are, you know, like a lot of my view is there's two kinds of swing voters. The ones that swing between the parties and the ones between swinging and swing between voting and not voting. Right. And both those things are important, but they're very focused on, look, I mean, I think that, I think the, like, there's this quote that's been coming out where the white house supposedly said, you should try to out organize the Republican voting restrictions and gerrymandering. I don't know if a White House staffer would come on camera and say that. I doubt that's what they think. What they really think, I suspect, is that the midterm electorate is going to be whiter and older than the general election elect than the election electorate was in 2020. So any whiter and more older electorate, we need to be we need to have our politics be whiter and older too. That's what they and that's that's what they're really thinking. And I think this was driving a lot of this. But, but the problem, of course, being the assumption that the electorate will be older and whiter means that you'll behave that way. But if you behave differently, maybe the electorate will be different. So I guess I see, you know, we, they're not going to sort of read out their strategies to us. But I, if you watch what they're doing, it sort of looks like 2009 and 2010 in some ways. And you know how that turned out. Yeah, yeah there's a whole book about it. <laughs> called Brown is the new white. Brown is the new one of the written, books about it. Yes. Written by Steve Phillips. <laughs> yeah, there are many of them, but I, but it's it's um you know both interesting and maddening that uh, Steve and I you know were focused on that project starting in 2005, I think Steve, and that message still is the one that we keep putting out there. Yeah. Um, and just yeah. one make one point yeah. of it is like there's the, you know there's a there's a similar tension in the you know the media, which is the field that I know the most, which is like. I was thinking of this, you know, in terms of, so I'm 40, so I'm on the younger end for Washington Post columnist, but I'm definitely no longer young. And so what you see is that a lot of people, both in the media and in the Democratic Party, their coming of age was, you know, from, there was a period from 1968 to 92 where the Democrats lost five of six elections this is after the civil rights laws are passed. And then Bill Clinton wins, but by distancing himself from civil rights causes, black people, et cetera. So I think a lot of people, Nancy Pelosi comes up in that period. So does Steny Hoyer. So does Clyburn for that matter. So I just think there's a lot of thinking in the Democratic Party that is like the worst thing we can do is seem too friendly to black people, you know, and that's and that's going to kill us. And then a lot of the media sort of who is full of these same people in their 50s and 60s who have a lot of power too, sort of reinforces that. I remember during the protest last year, um, I don't want to pick on him, but George Packer, work, right, you know, works for the Atlantic, wrote this sort of confident piece saying, 
Democrats need to be worried. These protests are going to backfire and kill them. There was no polling evidence showing this. In fact, every poll showed Biden was doing fine, but this is almost like a religious belief that anytime a civil rights protest happens or civil rights on the table, this hurts Democrats is a sort of almost ideological belief that is against evidence and continues to be against evidence, but is maybe only going to be sort of overturned as younger people ascend to these positions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you should write about that, that uh, arc. And then also even the way you're describing the narratives, like, Oh, well, uh, Clinton won, you know, by being more moderate Clinton won in an election in which Ross Perot ran and took right. a huge share of the conservative white vote. Correct. Uh, Perry, I want to pivot to talking about your time as a journalist. You've written extensively about the role of media and the role it plays in democracy, in our democracy, and what needs to change across several, what you call, you point out, several different institutions. You name the courts, businesses, places of worship, which I thought was all really interesting, your framing and the impact that those institutions have on shaping democracy in our country in order for our democracy to be healthy and strong. And in one of your last pieces for 538, you highlighted some of the questions that the political media is currently dealing with in this era, including how do you cover the Republican Party and what anti-racism in political journalism looks like. With all your experience, you mentioned this at the top of the show of being a journalist all these years. I, I was a journalist uh, in the in my first career, one of my first earlier career lives. And I know I know what you meant by there's this real ingrained mantra of you got to report in a fair and balanced way. And now you're an opinion writer whose job is to make your opinion very clear. You know, that's your job. And I was just kind of curious, like, what is that like for you right now, especially as a journalist of color? So um, this, this has been an easy period to make the transition in that, there's a ton of stuff, the important issues, and the Republican Party has gone in a direction to in which it was very hard to be sort of neutral about because mm -hmm. they not only went in a sort of anti-democratic direction, but in many ways an anti-black direction. You know, so it's like very easy. Maybe they were always there, but they're much more explicit about it now. So it's been much easier to so the transition in terms of like from the writing the pieces to the column has been fine. And I think it's an opportunity to say sort of where I want the world to sort of go, and that's been good. So that's kind of and because I often think there's a lot of columnists that are writing and a lot of writing is, is sort of in the in the sort of um, non and sort of like left left of center space a lot of the writing is sort of negative it's like trump it's like there is racism it's it's pervasive it's systemic trump is terrible the programs are terrible i think people need a vision of what are we for then and that's kind of what i'm trying to use the column for is like what are we for what does our positive vision look like how does that work i wrote a column about what does it mean to be sort of woke what does that mean how does that work i'm really trying to think about that and so i'm also trying to think about I don't want people to feel like paralyzed. It is true. The Republicans are going crazy and it doesn't seem like there's any solutions, but I think rather than be sort of like paralyzed by that, I, you know, I wrote one of the columns saying there are certain kinds of institutions that can work in our country and really fight back against that. Like I thought what Nicole Hannah Jones did 
was sort of useful to think about in that if you're at a public, like I love public colleges, public universities, they're very important. I, you know, I think they're, they're, they're so much, so many people go there and learn from those schools. That said, if you're in a, if you're at a public university right now in a state that's very Trump dominated, you do have to be thinking if I tweet this or say this and I'm not tenured, are these people going to try to find some way to fire me um, or get rid of me or demote me or someone? Because this is where we are now. The Republican Party is anti-institutions, particularly the media and universities. So I think that like the like private colleges have a huge role right now. So like a Howard has a role that's beyond educating. It always has had a big role, but it can have even an even bigger role now in this moment where it can be the place where real scholarships sponsored by people who maybe can't work and be honest at University of North Carolina can be honest there. The foundation world can be really, really important in this world. Um, the state of California and blue state governments can be really important right now because they're not gonna be, you know, Certain things Biden can't can't really say that Gavin Newsom should be saying. I think there is a reparations commission in California, in fact, because that's a place where you can do that kind of thing. So I think when we think about where we are now, I want to use the column because the Washington Post is a big institution too. We we now are in a moment where our democracy is under some real threat, and people need to sort of adjust from a we're complaining about it, and we've described the problem pretty well. I think people now know the Republicans are a real threat. So what do we do about it? Has got to be the real discourse now. So uh, we're coming up on time, so I wanted to to move towards wrapping up and to kind of also do something that we had done in some of the prior podcasts where we kind of asked the, you know, this really quick closing question about something a little bit, a little bit somewhat lighter and whatnot. And since we were all in the, I've all been in the journalism space, right? I was an intern way back in the day in the 80s. I worked on the Mercury News editorial board for a summer and the Cleveland Plain Dealer summer editorial board for a summer. So I, the question is, maybe we could each each quickly answer, because this obviously been in media and journalism through this whole technological revolution over the past period in time. So whether it's from that area or another. So the question is, what's the biggest change in journalism that you've witnessed? And why don't we each quickly answer and I'll, I'll start to give you a chance to think about it. One of my friends puts on Facebook that she was watching a movie with her kids who were like, you know, 10, 11, and that they were like blown away. It was older film by the concept of an afternoon edition of the paper. And I do think that to me, I would say that is, I used to work at the, I was a copy boy, the plane dealer, 1983, when they wrote their stories on uh, typewriters and this whole concept around it, you, a, a printed paper that comes out in the morning and that's how, when and how the news gets shaped when that paper actually gets delivered to me seems to be one of the biggest changes but perry what's your experience and then charlene you've been in this game for a minute too what can you take i think this twitter thing has really changed a lot and i and i'll give an example is that there was a press conference biden had earlier this year where nobody asked about covid and by the time that press conference was over, the reporters themselves who were in that room knew their colleagues who had been trashing them for this. Because by the time <laughs> the press conference was over, it had already become like a super viral narrative that, oh my God, <laughs> these people want to ask about. And I think that kind of, journalists get criticized a lot, but this kind of real-time immediate mm -hmm. feedback from your colleagues is reshaping journalism as we speak. I can only imagine. I, I sometimes think about and also like take pity on journalists today because of that, like the massive amount of um, pressure yeah. to respond in the moment. And I was a newspaper reporter, mostly in the 90s, a, a little bit in the two, 
early 2000s, but that none of that was in existence. And the only pressure you had was to beat your competitor, who, which it was another newspaper in the morning right. <laughs> in, in print. And so you were just trying to do everything you could to make sure that your story was better or you, had a, you were beating them to a um, breaking news. But everybody was coming out at the same time in the morning. Uh, I will say in terms of technology, what you know, one example that always makes me laugh and when I tell my daughter, she just can't wrap her head around it, is that I worked for the New York Daily News for a bit. And I was a young reporter covering essentially breaking news, crime, fires. So I would be sent into all sorts of neighborhoods and would have to file often on deadline. Deadline would, you know, let's say deadline was like at five o'clock. And sometimes if something just happened close to 5 p.m., you did not have time to go back to the newsroom. So I would have to write everything on my notepad, find a pay phone, <laughs> make oh, sure wow. I had enough dimes and quarters. And in New York City, a lot of times the neighborhoods didn't have a pay phone that, or one that worked. You know, right. they would be banged up. They would be cut up. There would be a cord with no, you know, receiver. So you'd finally find a payphone that worked could take your money and then you would get the editor you needed and I would read my entire article to that editor over the phone wow. and file that way. Wow. And now here we are in <laughs> I feel sick three, of it. Three dating different myself states, so much. <laughs> three different states and two different countries doing a podcast together via <laughs> yeah. um, Zoom. Yeah. Great. All right, so we're running up against time, so I just uh, we need to kind of wrap it up here. But Perry, we just really want to thank you for taking the time for being on the pod, and um, and also really uh, express, you know, how glad we are that your voice is out there on a platform like the Post and putting these views out there is really critical. So I'm, I'm you know happy that you're at this at this new stage for your career, and and really grateful you could join us today. And I want to say thanks to you guys. I guess, first of all, you know, I, I think I read Steve's book back in 2016 when it came out. We connected and we've sort of been in touch since. And, I've, you know, I, I have to say I've learned a lot from Steve in terms of thinking about politics, looking at data. He's one of the smartest people in the country in terms of really thinking about politics in a smart and in a, in a, in a, in a path-breaking, a bold way. He's like, he's really educated people, including me, about how politics work. He's improved my thinking. And this podcast, I discovered this podcast maybe two months ago, but I went back and re listened to almost all the episodes because I think oh my you, guys, you guys bring, but wow. you guys have brought on some really interesting guests. And because your perspective is not the sort of dominant one, you actually ask questions in which and I, you know, I even people I've heard interviewed a thousand times. You tend to ask questions and make them talk about themselves and talk about their work in a way that's really um, enlightening and sort of open. You can, sometimes I can hear they're like, "Oh, I've never been asked that before," and they're sort of thinking. And it's unusual to get a broadcast where people are thinking and not just sort of giving their uh, talking points. So I'm, so I'm grateful for this podcast, and I'm, and I'm hopeful more people listen to it. Oh, Perry, we're we're honored. I, I got a big head now. Thank you so much. That's, <laughs> oh, I know. Very hum lips, humbling. <laughs> to Chuck Todd's ears, right? So, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks so much, Perry. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. If you're not already, you can follow Perry on Twitter, where he offers a lot of interesting insight and um, uh, commentary. He's at Perry Bacon Jr. on Twitter. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. 
And if you're not already, also, please subscribe to our newsletter at democracyandcolor.com, where we do weekly roundups and um, insights and articles, things we're reading and watching. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Bola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep safe.